Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Galatians chapter 6. That's where we are as we complete our series, Liberty and Love, looking through the book of Galatians chapter by chapter. Galatians 6 is the bulk of our, well, we'll spend the bulk of our time there with this key concept in mind, kill conceit so that you can help others. Kill conceit so that you can help others. Others. Today we're considering what we should do for one another when one of the family of faith falls prey to flagrant sin. Paul is addressing that in Galatians chapter 6. Throughout the letter, he's been urgently calling the Galatian Christians away from a legalistic mindset, away from a rule-based church system toward a spirit-led, grace-saturated fellowship. But being part of a Spirit-led, grace-saturated fellowship doesn't mean that we won't encounter problems from time to time. In fact, life is messy. It always has been messy. It always will be messy. And the mess comes from the fact that people are messy and the church is people. And what I mean by messy is this. People fail. We fail to show up when we promised we would show up. We fail to follow through the commitments that we promised we would follow through. We know they are important at the time, but we back away. We get lazy. And crucially, we fail to live up to our self-proclaimed standards. We fall prey to temptation from time to time. We struggle in the battle for righteousness from time to time. It gets messy. But it is how we handle that mess that speaks to who we are. And Paul's addressing that in our final chapter. But back in chapter 5, we notice that Paul has illustrated the, the kind of harvest that the Holy Spirit wants to raise up in the lives of His people, the fruit of the Spirit that He wants to see demonstrated in the lives of Christ's followers. And even as Paul has laid that out and insisted that we understand that this is what walking the Christian life is meant to look like, he realizes that it will not always be lived up to. That standard will not always be followed. So now in chapter 6, he says, this is how you respond when that happens. Let's begin, though, for the, with the last verse of chapter 5. As it sets the stage, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Now, it's important that we see the link between our call to be involved in one another's lives in in gracious ways and our view of ourself, our our self-understanding. Our conduct toward one another will be an extension of the way that we view ourselves. Paul first, in the last uh, verse of chapter 5, warns us against becoming conceited. And the Greek word there, we translate conceit, means a falsely exalted view of yourself. Don't have a falsely exalted view of yourself because if you do, your relationship with others will be poisoned. 
the way we treat one another when we have a falsely exalted view of ourself looks a lot more like challenge than support. It looks a lot more like competition than blessing. And the implication is that the conceited person, that one who has a falsely exalted view of themselves, is so sure of their superiority, thinking themselves to be always right, that they constantly go around trying to prove that point to the people around them. Constantly in a contest, everything, everything turns into a contest. And Paul is saying this element of rivalry has no place in the church, but rather bear one another's burdens, carry each other's burdens. And the point he's making is we all will have a burden from time to time. And as you help one another, even in the burden of failure, you fulfill what he calls the law of Christ. Remember, the Galatian Christians are getting all caught up in the Mosaic law. Uh, being told that you have to follow the law of Moses. And Paul is saying, no, it's the law of Christ that really matters. And this is the law of Christ. Care about this law. Verse 1 again of chapter 6. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Seek to restore. Because out of that brokenness can come beauty. I was reading recently about a tradition uh, in Japan. It's called kintsugi. And what kintsugi is, is, is when a vessel, a cup, or a vase or something breaks, instead of just throwing it out or instead of just trying to glue it together with superglue, what they actually do is they use melted gold in the places where it's broken and that fracture, and they actually build something that looks like a work of art out of that broken vessel. Do we have a picture of that? There, there's just a, an example of it. That vessel was evidently shattered and put together with uh, a melted gold. And, and some of these pieces that, that you see in this art form kintsugi is, are, are amazingly gorgeous. It, it illustrates the fact that spiritual repair that we can bring to one another by the power of the Holy Spirit, even when there is a failure, spiritual repair can bring beauty out of brokenness. And why, how this fits into Paul's argument against the legalist is this, this. Nothing demonstrates the wickedness of legalism more than how the legalist will treat those who fail. You see, the legalist that Paul's writing to counter will not be burden bearers for those who are struggling in the problems of life. In fact, they will make the moral burden of failure even heavier with extreme condemnation. Okay? And so that's what he's writing against. He's not showing us the entire picture here of how uh, a restoration happens. He's going to talk about having a process of restoration, but he's not giving both sides of that in Galatians chapter 6. He's just talking to those who are, are called to help someone else who falls. And we need to understand something more about what he's saying. There's a slight misunderstanding that can creep into our reading when we're reading verse 1 in English. Hear it again. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. I want you to concentrate on that word caught. Because for years as I read this, I was reading that as if one of you catches another one of you in a sin. 
That's not what he's saying. It's, it's as if, you know, gotcha, I knew you were up to something, and now it has come to light, all is revealed. That's not the point, though, however. You can, you can get that in English, but in, in the Greek it says this. The way it's worded in the Greek says, it is the sin itself that is doing the catching. The 1946 Revised Standard Version gets it right when it says this. It translates it, if one of you is overtaken by sin. He's really not addressing how the sin has come to light, but much more addressing what sin does. Sin is a trap. Sin overtakes us. And when sin has overtaken and trapped someone in your fellowship, here's what you are meant to do body of believers. Now, the legalist is ready to write that person off. The re legalist is ready to push that person out and to use them as an example. The, the thinking is this. We need to act swiftly. We need to act harshly and make sure that the punishment is obvious so we scare people away from ever doing what that guy did. In other words, the fallen person is no longer a person. He or she is an object lesson. They turn into a tool for warning Remember so-and-so, you don't want to be like them. You don't want that to happen to you. Keep their fate in mind. But Paul is saying, no, no, for the grace-saturated fellowship, the orientation is not to exclude but to reclaim. Now, the fallen have to want to be reclaimed, right? He's giving us the side of the story of those who are reaching out recognize that repentance has to happen on the other side as well. A desire for renewal has to happen. But he's concentrating on the work of the fellowship. You who are spiritual, he says, should step in gently and seek to restore. Don't flee in the other direction and pretend nothing's happening. Don't pretend you don't see it. Don't be so quick to impose punishment first, but first gently seek to restore. And paying attention to the word restore, once again, it's an, it's an interesting word because it translates a word that in this century was used of both the medical profession and the fishing profession. It means to bring back to the former position. And the, it were, the word was used of a doctor who would set a broken bone, restore that, mend that. And it's also used of a fisherman who would mend their frayed nets, put it right, put it back to where it was, bring healing. And it's the task for those of us who are spiritual. Now, when you hear that, here's what's going on inside some of you. Phew, that lets me off. Nobody ever accused me of being spiritual. And so since I don't want to get in the mud and deal with people's problems, that's great news for me. I don't have to be bothered. But hold on. He doesn't say for those who are perfect. In fact, he's... Uh, purposefully using that word to drive our minds back to chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, back there where the fruit of the Spirit are given. He's challenging us to be living that life, and he says that's what a spiritual life looks like. For you who are seeking to walk the pathway where the fruit of the Spirit blooms, for you who want that fruit of the Spirit to be harvested in your own life, this is what you should do, he's saying. You should seek to restore the flagrantly fallen, and he should seek to do it gently. It means seek to do it in a way that demonstrates love for the person. Seek to do it in a way that demonstrates respect for their humanity, that demonstrates faith in their faith. Don't be quick to write people off. First, 
seek to restore the fallen and do so without arrogance, without superiority, and certainly without gossip. This is the way of gentle restoration. And this is how we are to respond to those who are flagrantly fallen. See, Paul's not saying that we need to parachute into everybody's lives all the time and just be a correcting force. He's not saying you need to be in everybody's face and make sure you're giving advice to everybody you see, no. But there are times that there's a flagrant situation in which we must intervene. It's not every day, and it's not all the time, but the time does come from time to time, and we are to do so gently. And so we ask ourselves, okay, how do we start that? Well, it always begins with a bit of a challenge, with a bit of a speaking the truth in love, but still it sounds like a challenge. And what will be the result of that attempt of intervention when we approach the fallen in that way? What will happen when we begin to challenge someone with behavior that is inappropriate even to gently bring them back? Even if we do that as gently as we can, what will be the result? And I will tell you from painful and personal experience that it will not always go well, especially not at first. The typical carnal response to even a gentle challenge is this, who are you to speak to me? Are you some sort of Mr. Perfect? I'm sure you sin as well, right? There's sin in your life, so who are you to challenge sin in my life? And by the way, as we all know, all sin is equal in the eyes of God. What right do you have to confront me? I've heard that script before. I recite that script from memory. And I can tell you this, that is a pretense wrapped in a lie based in a falsehood. A pretense wrapped in a lie based in a falsehood. Here's what I mean. It is technically true to say that all sin is equivalent in the category it exists in. It's equivalent in that all sin is a violation of God's standards. So it's in the same category. That's true. But not all sin is equal in the sight of God regarding the consequence. Not all sin is equal regarding the way it hurts or the damage that it causes. And the fact is that the fact that the various sinful acts bring about a variety of consequences is the foundation of our legal system of justice with felonies and misdemeanors in view, those kinds of things. There are some deeds that when done will have devastating consequences in an individual, in a church, and in a family. And when those things happen, when those flagrant things occur, Paul is saying, a burden bearer is needed. And the burden bearer begins in a challenge. But he's talking about the manner in which that burden bearer ministers. The manner must be gentle. It's not easy, but it's the obligation of love. Even in grace saturated fellowships, from time to time, this will occur. And then he, and he concludes verse 1 with this, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. What does he mean by that? Well, it could mean that 
He means to warn us for, uh, against falling prey to the very areas of temptation that we're challenging and confronting. He recognizes that Satan is crafty and he may even tempt the burden bearer so that he or she begins to desire in the flesh the things that are being confronted in the flesh. It may be that, but more likely it is in the context he's saying, be careful that you don't develop a sense of pride, a sense of superiority. Be careful that you don't develop that conceited attitude that he warned against in verse 26 of chapter 5, a prideful gloating. Be careful about that. Keep that front of mind because it is easy for Satan to slip in and push us to that place. Pride will kill burden-bearing in the way that Paul's describing it. Pride will kill gentleness. And so in verse 3, he continues on, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, and then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. He's circling back to that idea of don't become conceited. But he's also surfacing the concept that there is a way to have proper pride in yourself. It isn't through comparison. It isn't through judgmentalism. It isn't through competition. But rather, it's asking yourself, am I, in the way I approach others, am I seeking to fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love? Am I doing that in a gentle and compassionate way? And this sense of satisfaction that you can get from knowing that that's what I'm trying to do, that's what he calls the, a proper pride in yourself. Bear the burden of gentle restoration for those who have fallen. But the Christian life is more than just bearing burdens. It's also sharing blessings. So let, look at verse 6. He says this, Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. Now, we'll pause there for a moment while I note this. This could easily become the preacher's favorite Bible verse, <laughs> right? We could fall into the habit of the preacher returning to this verse uh, over and again in each and every message, you know? And, and of course, this connects to Galatians 6.6, 6, or in closing this evening, remember Galatians 6.6? 6. Well, we're, we're going to avoid that for a moment. But the verse tells us something about our own history. Remember, Paul is writing this letter approximately A.D. 48. 48, the year 48. The Christian movement is just barely getting started. They're just beginning to ramp things up. And already we see that some in the fellowship are being set apart to teach the Word. And those are being supported by the group. 2,000 years later, we're still functioning in that first century model. And also, this connects to the whole theme of bearing and sharing because one of the burdens of a mature faith is the burden of supporting the work financially and supporting those who lead and those who teach. Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 7, the worker deserves his wages. And I say all that simply to say how grateful I am for the family of Quail who supports these ideas. You pay the staff wages that allow us to live and labor with joy, and we are so grateful for that. But notice what Paul says next, connected even to that. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. 
A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. There's the principle of sowing and reaping. He's saying it applies to the, your support of the work of the ministry, and it's, it applies to your own spiritual growth, to the way that you follow Jesus. Invest in your spiritual growth, and you will reap a harvest, sowing and reaping. Now, sowing and reaping is similar to cause and effect, but it has some differences. Difference number one is cause and effect is immediate. If I jump off a building, I'm not going to be like Wiley Coyote hanging there in space with enough time to help hold up a sign that says, yikes. No, I'm going to fall right away because that's cause and effect. But sowing and reaping is different. Sowing and reaping asks you to think long-term, down the line. Cause and effect is A leads to B. But sowing and reaping is if I, if I do A, I'm not going to just look to B, but I'm going to have to think about C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. In other words, if I do A, eventually I'm going to get K back. The reaping is later. The reaping is down the line. The farmer reaps at the end of the season, and the reaping is greater. The, farther, the farmer reaps more than what he sows in terms of volume, later and greater. And Paul is saying on, a po on the positive side, therefore, hang in there. The chain of events happens over the long haul. Do not become weary because the process is working itself out, and there is a harvest of blessing that will be reaped. The harvest will come in if you keep the, keep the faith and, and hang in there. We're not helpless victims to the outcomes of our life. And so he's saying a right relationship between the taught and the teacher will produce good fruit in the fellowship in the church. He's also saying a right willingness to bear one another's burdens and be involved in one another's lives will produce the kind of faith family that you want down the line. And he's saying a right sowing of the seeds in your own soul of faith and prayer and patience and purity, it will provide down the line a harvest of hope in your Christian walk. Sowing and reaping. So what are we sowing? What are the kind of seeds that we're scattering in our life? They will all develop something someday. You can sow that which is spiritual. And then Paul, in verse 11, begins his sign-off. He says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Paul winds the letter down. He takes the pen in his hand, and that reminds us a little, of a little historical insight. He would have been dictating this letter, as was the process. Uh, some, a secretary would be writing down as Paul speaks the letter out loud. But here... He grabs that pen from that secretary, and he writes the rest of it in his own hand in order, first of all, to authenticate the fact that this is really coming from the Apostle Paul. Some of what he's doing and saying to the Galatian Christians will be controversial, and there will be people who don't want to say that is official and that's from the Apostle. They'll push back against it. No, he's saying, this is really me, and he does it also for emphasis 
I really mean it. I really want this to be understood, what I'm teaching in this letter. And in his own hand, as he writes the, the final paragraphs of the letter, he takes a final swipe at the Judaizers, if you notice, who are seeking to drag the church back into legalism. He speaks to their motives. He says, first of all, they're doing that just to avoid persecution themselves. They're doing that to bring a spotlight on themselves. They're doing that so that they are seen to be great men, superstars of the faith. They boast about their ideas and their influence, verse 13. Verse 14, but I boast in Jesus and in the cross of Jesus Christ. They want to make themselves look good, but I am about making Jesus look good. In fact, I recognize that in myself, I don't look all that good. Why? Verse 17, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The word marks there is the word stigmata. It was a common word in this day. It was the word that would be used of the branding of an animal so that we would know what flock or what herd that animal belongs to. When Paul says the word stigmata, he's saying, I am branded with the identifying marks of Jesus, not because of circumcision, not because of a religious ritual or a legalistic approach, but I bear in my bodies the stigmata, the scars of suffering for Christ. I bear the scars of stones thrown, the beating with sticks, the kicks and the punches as people have reacted to my message with hatred. And now I look at my body. It doesn't look all that good with these scars and bruises, but I see that as the stigmata of Christ. This is the identifying marks that I am in the flock of God. I am where I need to be. And it brings a challenge to our mind, right? Those are the marks that Paul is the real deal. And where are the marks of Jesus in our lives? In other words, do we see the mark of Jesus noticeable in our checkbook? Do we see the mark of Jesus noticeable in our schedule, the way we run our life and pattern our week to week? Do we see the mark of Jesus noticeable in our lifestyle? Are there things that we do and things that we don't do because that is the stigmata, the mark of Jesus, that I am really His and He's made a difference in my life? Paul literally has scars on his body for preaching the message. And the message is, you have all you need for your salvation in Jesus Christ. Don't go back to a works-centered religion. Lovingly bear burdens. Lovingly share blessings. Restore the fallen. Don't become weary in well-doing, and you will reap a harvest, a harvest of a fellowship where God-honoring trans, uh, transformation is taking place. The law you should care about is not the law of legalism and rules, but it is the law of Christ which is the law of love, and that's the law that matters. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You for Paul's boldness, and thank You for his willingness to even endure suffering for Your cause. Lord, enable us to find in our own lives the marks of Jesus, the identifying marks that shows that we are truly Yours, and bless us as we seek to live for You and in love with one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.